This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. You know, so mindfulness is all about relationship. It's not about what is happening. It's about how we are relating to what's happening. I think of it, these days, I think of it as like the holding environment. It's the space within which something is being experienced. Welcome to the Be Here Now guest podcast. This series features a collection of teachings and conversations centered around mindfulness, spiritual growth, and living a life in balance. Each week, our diverse network of guest teachers and hosts offer up wisdom and practices from a different spiritual path and perspective. If you would like to support this podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash donate. Welcome, everyone. It's great to be together again for the Ramdas Fellowship live stream. We get together every month, and our purpose for gathering is to share wisdom that can hopefully help us better navigate this lovely human predicament that we're all in in these times. And all of you, each one of you here, you are part of the Ramdas Satsang, this sacred community pointed towards truth. Um, and this is what Ramdas had hoped for. Um, after his passing is that we would continue to gather in satsang, continue to deepen into the teachings. And maybe it's similar to what Raghu was talking about last month uh, when he quoted Thich Nhat Hanh, who suggests that the next teacher will be the community. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Jacqueline Dobrinska. I'm the Education and Outreach, Outreach Director for Love, Serve, Remember Foundation. And tonight, we're super excited to be welcoming Sharon Salzberg, who I personally think is one of the most grounded, discerning, clear, and open-hearted way showers of our time. Um, our topic is the power of meditation and the three skills of con- the three skills of concentration, mindfulness, and compassion. And I don't know about how many of you, but I know that especially in the beginning, I brought such rigidity and perfectionism to my practice. And over time, that compassion and kindness developed, and it was a game changer. So I think Sharon might talk a little bit about that tonight. Um, For those of you who are joining us for the first time in one of these live streams, uh, I'm just going to give you a little bit of a lay of the land for tonight. We'll spend about 75 minutes together. The first half is a talk with, it will include a meditation with Sharon, and then we'll go into our uh, live audience Q&A. And how that works is just at any time, you can type your chat into whatever platform you're watching from, 
And Gina, the lovely Gina is on the back end and she'll um, be gathering those questions and she'll be sending them to me and I can ask them of Sharon in the second half. Um, and we'll get to as many as we can. So with that, just invite you to take some deep breaths and begin to presence yourself into this moment to sort of step out of the momentum of our days and settle, to settle our breath, settle our nervous systems, maybe even feel the mind begin to settle. And as we presence ourselves into the loving awareness that is this moment, we recognize that we are here in community with hundreds and even thousands of folks from all over the globe. All of us here with similar intentions of love and peace, equanimity and harmony. So we just breathe that in together. And from that place, we welcome Sharon Salzberg. Uh, I would imagine many of you know her already to some degree. Uh, she's a pioneer in meditation and one of the first to bring mindfulness and meditation to mainstream America about 45 years ago. Uh, she's the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society and author of 11 books, including a New York Times bestseller, Real Happiness. And I, she, we were talking earlier, she has two more in the works. Um, she's also a world-renowned teacher. Um, and I think so many of us appreciate uh, about her that she's had this relatable, demystifying approach, which inspires generations of teachers and influencers. So let us shine our love and light and warm welcome to Sharon as she shares with this fellowship tonight. Welcome, Sharon. So glad you're here. Thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be with you, to be with you all. Um, and it's kind of a fun topic, I think. It's certainly fun for me. Um, and, uh, you know, I began meditation in uh, January of 1971 in Bodh Gaya, India. Ramdas was there as another attendee of, of this retreat. The teacher was S.N. Goenka. And the first night, so this is the first night of my first retreat ever, um, Goenka said, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life. And that became a kind of hallmark understanding for me that when we do these practices, it's not about assuming an identity or rejecting anything else or certainly not feeling better than anybody else, but it's about a way of life. It's what we do when we face adversity, when we face disruption, when we have a sparkling, lovely opportunity in front of us and we're kind of squeamish about going for it, or there's a lot of joy sort of in the surround and, and we don't feel we deserve it. And so we kind of shun it or all those times that we live a life and we have relationships and we have a livelihood probably. And, you know, so many things that uh, we're trying to bring our deepest values into. And so that became really my firm um, orientation towards these practices. And, and I think also in uh, Pali, the language of the original Buddhist texts, the word that we translate as meditation is bhavana, B-H-A-V-A-N-A, -A -A, and it literally means cultivation. 
So we're cultivating the ground so that the things that we want, love, connection, clarity, wisdom, can emerge. They're like emergent properties of the work that we do in paying attention differently and developing these skills and so on. And that is kind of a nice image for me. You know, it's a gentle image. It's like, reminds me of my colleague, Joseph Goldstein, who I also met at my first retreat. He was another student there um, who describes, he tells the story sometimes about growing his first, and I believe his only garden in which he was about nine years old. And he said he got so impatient when the little green fluffy stuff started coming up on top of the carrots that he yanked them up to help them grow faster. So he didn't have much of a harvest, which is probably why it was his only garden. You know, it's like we do our part, we cultivate the ground and nature takes its course. We need to be patient. We need to allow things to unfold. It's not our normal kind of grabby, grasping mentality where you might think, I have a really big insight before lunch. I don't have to stay for the afternoon. You know, like we're just cultivating the ground. Uh, there's another uh, kind of terminology um, aspect that I find interesting in some schools of Tibetan Buddhism the word that we would translate as meditation, they translate with this really cute phrase, which is getting used to it or getting familiar with it. <clears throat> so that, of course, brings up the question, what's it? And that's based pretty much on a belief that as human beings with ordinary human lives, we have had very likely profound moments of clarity of peace, of love, of connection, but we don't tend to live there. We don't tend to be used to it. Something happens, even, you know, tremendous suffering sometimes does that for us. It kind of wears away everything else. And we're just left with what's underlying it all. Or inspiration or love, so many art, you know, so many things. We have these moments and we might think, what was that? Or I don't think I'll tell anyone about that. Or I think I'll tell everyone about that. Or very commonly, I don't know how to get back there. Right? So they're a little bit exotic and odd and off. You know, they're, they're distant, those moments. So their proposition is that we meditate, not because we have nothing going and we never have, We've had these moments, but we we meditate to get familiar with it, to feel at home there, to find rest there, to find refuge there. So that, too, is a very different sort of vibe or spirit to the nature of meditation, where we do tend to think I have nothing going. And if I strive really hard, I'll get something that I can show off to people. It's different than that. So it's in that spirit that I think of meditation. Not for me, but it's through the experience of it that we know. So what are the three basic skills? And I think these are kind of helpful to know because I think they cut through many methods and styles and, and uh, ways of practice, which we can get 
kind of attached to, you know, my way is better than your way or, or whatever. But um, if they're all doing the same thing, pretty much, then that undercuts some of that kind of holding and, and grasping and, and identifying. So the first great skill of meditation practice, which we cultivate, is concentration. Which in this context doesn't mean like narrowing your focus and squeezing it down and holding on tight and getting uptight. It means gathering. The basic idea is that our experience is such that we are fairly distracted or scattered, not maybe all the time, maybe not in every arena of life, but at least at times, you know, you sit down to think something through and you're just gone. You're gonzo. Like our minds jump to the past and they say, we tend to go to things in the past where we now have some regret. I should have said more. I should have said nothing. Why did I show up? Why didn't I show up? And there are ways, of course, of reflecting on those kinds of, of actions with an eye to making amends or lessons learned, or there are ways of just being stuck there where we just go over it and 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 over it. And, over it. and we get more exhausted and more uh, demoralized and more agitated. So that's what we're talking about as a habit. We just go back there, we go over it and over it and over it and over it and over it. And over it to no avail. And or, and I'd say, especially in a time like ours now, you know, which uh, can be so challenging, it's an and. We are filled with anxiety about the future and we create a scenario that has not happened and may never happen. And we kind of give ourselves over to it. Like, what's it going to be when I go back to New York City and I go into my apartment and I haven't been there in eight months and turn on the faucet? I think I read you can get Legionnaire's disease if you do that. How am I going to tell? What's the world going to look like? What's it going to smell like? Right? What's it going to be like? Oh, no, I have. I better have Legionnaire's disease. How are they going to tell in the hospital what I have? You know, I think, what? You know, like I'm not even in New York. Um, well, I'm in New York right now. You know, our minds just spin out. Um, we are left kind of holding this scenario feeling fractured, feeling overcome. And it's not even happened, you know? It's just anticipation. And so you can just feel in those examples how much of our life energy we lay to waste. We just throw it over into being caught. And that's, again, you know, there are ways of thinking about the future that are good, that are wholesome, that are onward leading, but that's not our habit. You know, it's just to spin in those ways. And so... We get lost in the past, we get lost in the future. And the process of concentrating is one of gathering. We're gathering all that kind of crazy energy and attention. We're bringing it together and we're settling. The very classical way of practicing this across traditions is to choose an object of awareness. That's now home base, right? We rest our attention on that object. And that is not easy, by the way. That in itself is a kind of training. Usually, let's say it's the sensation of the breath, the feeling of the breath. Usually we grab onto it really tight, thinking if I hold on tight, my mind won't wander. It actually will wander more. 
So we learn how to rest. The example used is like a butterfly resting on a flower. That's not easy. And it's different from our normal day-to-day reality. Like I wrote one book called um, Real Happiness, which has a lot of guided meditation instruction in it. And the first time it came back from the editor, she said to me, you're using the word rest a lot. Are you very tired? And I wrote back, well, probably, but that's actually the word. We don't think of it, you know, just rest our attention. So that's part of the training. And then what we discover is it's not that long before our attention wanders away from that home base. Now, again, the home base could be anything. In some systems, it's a mantra, it's a sound, it's an image, it's a prayer. Uh, It could be the feeling of the breath, the sensations of the breath. It could be phrases of loving kindness. It could be something else happening in your body. Um, My early teachers would emphasize the breath, although you wouldn't necessarily stay there forever. It was like considered an interesting and important part of your practice. Uh, And that's, you know, some people tell me in kind of COVID times, these times the breath is especially difficult. So it doesn't have to be the breath in truth. But the reason they liked at least part of your practice to be the breath was because as uh, one teacher said, um, you don't have to call yourself a Buddhist or a Hindu in order to breathe. It's really universal. If you can breathe, you can meditate. And another teacher said, I always felt very charmingly, he said, the breath is very portable. So let's say you are using the breath as the anchor for your attention in your formal period of meditation each day. Let's say you sit every day for 20 minutes. Let's, you know, let's just say that. And then you're at work or you're commuting or you're on Zoom or something's happening. So you're getting agitated. You're starting to get anxious. You don't need equipment. You don't need to close your eyes and look weird. Nobody even has to know you're doing it. You're just settling your attention on the feeling of the breath, which returns you to yourself. It returns you to the moment. And in that return, we return to our values. We return to what we really care about. We can bring that out in the meeting, right? That is going on, something like that. So it's useful that they say if the breath doesn't work, and it really doesn't work for some people, that's fine. Maybe for at least part of your practice, you might choose something like that, portable, listening to sound, feeling something else in your body. Um, But in general, there's a pretty wide variety of places we might choose as as that resting place, as that home base. We rest our attention on that chosen object. We're gone, you know. As many of you have heard me say, this was the first meditation instruction I ever got in that course in India in January of 1971. It was sit down and feel your breath. And I was completely contemptuous. I would feel my breath. That's stupid. Came all the way to India. You know, where's the magical, esoteric, fantastic technique that's going to change my whole life? And then I thought, huh? how hard can this be? What will it be, like 800 breaths, 900 breaths? 
before my mind starts to wander. And to my astonishment, it was like one breath. So it was half a breath and I'd be gone. I'd be way gone. What I didn't realize for a very long time was that the art of it all was learning how to let go more gracefully, learning how to begin again with less judgment, with more kindness toward myself. There was so much in what seemed so simplistic, even just beginning again, which I consider maybe the most profound understanding I ever got from meditation. How many times a day in life do we have to begin again? We make a mistake or we realize I need a course correction. I need to look at this from a different angle. But we actually fall down and we have to pick ourselves up or let others help us up. We begin again all the time. That's what resilience is, right? It's sort of that adjustment. It's being alive to change, being able to move and being able to flow. That's what we're actually practicing when we get distracted, when we let go, when we begin again. So there's a lot in there in developing concentration. Some people don't even like the word concentration. I remember I was teaching once somewhere uh, in the Midwest in the U.S. And um, somebody came, it was like a non-residential weekend. And this was Saturday before lunch, before the lunch break. And somebody came up to me and said, um, how much money would it take for me to offer you for you to never use the word concentration again? So I said, let's talk. And uh, they went on to say, clearly for them, there was an association with like being uptight and being resentful of everything that is taking you away from the object of concentration and you know, getting more uptight as you try to ward it all off and throw it away. It's not like that. We settle, we rest, we gather, we begin again. We don't blame ourselves when we lose it. We don't feel like a failure. We say, oh, right, start over. Um, you know, so I said to this person, would it work for you if every time I use the word concentration, because that's what I'm used to, you mentally translated it to centered, settled. And they said that would work. So I said, you just saved yourself a lot of money. You know, so here we are. That is the first great skill. The second is, uh, you could call it, what is like the word of the hour, mindfulness, um, which has a particular meaning. It can mean many different things. Even within a you know spiritual or Buddhist context, it can mean many different things. Uh, as I was taught, we tend to use it. Um, the definition something like it's a quality of awareness where our perception of what's happening in the present moment is not so distorted by like old fears or projection into the future. It's like if you have something uncomfortable, something painful happening in your body or heartache, disappointment. Very commonly, we immediately start projecting it. What's it going to feel like tonight? What's it going to feel like tomorrow? What's it going to feel like next week? What's it going to feel like next month? And so we're not only feeling the actual discomfort, we have now added to it this whole pile of anticipation, trying to bear it all at once and feeling overcome and 
defeated. It's too much. Or we have a certain emotion arise and it's the forbidden emotion. It's the one we've always been taught. No, no, not that. Or if you feel that, that means you've lost control. If you're afraid, that's wrong. That's your weakness, something like that. So as soon as that emotion arises, we're just trying to make it go away. Or we've got some weird relationship to joy, which is not uncommon. I don't deserve it. Or I've got to cling to this. I've got to make sure this situation never changes. This person never changes as though that could work. Um, you know, so mindfulness is all about relationship. It's not about what is happening. It's about how we are relating to what's happening. I think of it these days, I think of it as like the holding environment. It's the space within which something is being experienced. If something comes up, for example, and we push it away right away, that's a certain way of relating. If something comes up and we are engulfed in it, we're overcome and we can't even imagine ever feeling anything else, that's a certain way of relating. If we have more of a sense of being balanced and aware and open, not being sucked into, not pushing away, that's what we call mindfulness. So not only is it a cheerier way of living, you know, and it is. Um, it also leads to what is considered the most precious gift of mindfulness, which is insight or wisdom, which makes a lot of sense, right? Like if an emotion comes up, and as soon as it comes up, you're trying to get rid of it, there's not going to be a lot of learning going on. Or if as soon as it comes up, you pile on the guilt and the shame, and you know, I shouldn't feel this or whatever. There's not going to be a lot of learning going on because the reaction is so strong. Or if you get consumed by every feeling that comes up, so that there's no space, there's like no centeredness, uh, everything is going to seem overwhelming and there's not going to be a lot of learning going on. And so if we can be present with our experience, with that kind of spaciousness, that openness, that is mindfulness, then we are setting the stage for insight or understanding. Like another great gift of mindfulness tends to be what is celebrated the most these days. And that is actually living our lives, you know, fully, not always multitasking, not always like drinking a cup of tea while checking your email, while on a conference call while, you know, on Zoom. Sometimes just drinking the cup of tea. You feel the warmth of the teacup. You feel the weight of it. You smell the tea. You taste the tea. It's not an activity that's going to explode your to-do list. It's not going to take seven hours. But it's actually being alive and present for our experience, whatever it is. And of course, that's something to be celebrated and I think cultivated. But beyond that, mindfulness is almost like designed for wisdom, like not just inhabiting our lives, but really understanding our lives. Like, what brings us sorrow, really? What brings us unhappiness? What brings us joy or fulfillment? It may not be the things we've been taught. 
so many of us have a kind of conditioning that, you know, to be strong, you need to be vengeful. Uh, you, you can't be generous. That's like for suckers or, you know, whatever. Uh, if you're loving, you're too soft. Um, and it's fascinating just to see the associations we have with different states as we observe them, as we're mindful of them. And to understand that this is a path of discovery. It's up to us. Not what we've been taught, but what do we see when we look at a loving heart, when we look at generosity, when we actually maybe act on generosity, a generous impulse. And what do we find? What does it feel like? What's it like when we are lost in kind of a vengeful fantasy? What's it like when we are consumed with the wrong actions of another, the hurtful actions of another? Like I have a friend who describes himself as a kind of obsessive type. Like somebody, maybe not even anyone he knows necessarily, somebody will behave badly in his eyes and he'll think about it and think about it and think about it and think about it and think about it. And he finally said, uh, I think this is probably an AA statement. He said something like, I let him live rent-free in my brain for too long. And uh, it's funny because I was teaching the other day and somebody um, was speaking and they used the example of, um, I let him rent out a room or him or her, doesn't matter. I think they said him. Uh, I let him rent out a room in my brain for a long time. And I said, it's worse than that. You didn't charge any rent, you know? Um, we can do that so easily. And we think that's what we're supposed to do. But when we really take a look at what it feels like, or when we blame ourselves mercilessly, you know, like let's go back to the simple example of the meditation. You're sitting you're resting your attention on the feeling of the breath. Your mind wanders and you just lay into yourself. I can't believe I'm thinking. No one else in the room is thinking. No one else on the Zoom is thinking. They're all over the world. No one's thinking. They're not thinking. I'm thinking. Why aren't they thinking? It's the middle of the night for them. They should be thinking, but they're not thinking. They're sitting here in light and I'm the only one who's thinking. I'm so bad. I'm so terrible. I'm so awful. You know, so when we emerge from that, not only have we added maybe a considerable length of time to the distraction, but we're so exhausted by it. It's not useful. It's not skillful. And it's only when we directly see that that we think, I don't need to be cultivating that. That'll happen because we have it, but I don't need to make it stronger and more frequent. All of those things. Let me cultivate something else which is the ability, say, to be kind to myself in the face of not having lived up to some impossible standard. So mindfulness is about the holding environment. It's about how we are relating to everything that comes up in our experience, whatever it might be, however it might feel. Toward the end of deepening wisdom. So the third skill, which is really interwoven throughout, is Compassion, beginning with compassion for ourselves. Because here it is, right? Your mind wanders. How are you going to speak to yourself? Uh, how are you toward yourself at the end of the day? Um, 
let's say you have the habit of kind of looking at your experience and only pretty much thinking about the mistakes you made and what went wrong. To ever think of like, let me think about the blessings in my life or what I have to be grateful for. Or anything else happened today? It will meditate one more time. <laughs> Starting from the top. See? <laughs> See if you can sit comfortably. Eyes open or closed. It's really up to you. Start by listening to sound, whether it's the sound of my voice or other sounds. It's a way of relaxing deep inside, allowing our experience to come and go. And of course, we like certain sounds and we don't like others. But we don't have to follow after them to hold on or push away. Just let the sounds wash through you. And bring your attention to the feeling of your body sitting, whatever sensations you discover. See if you can feel the earth supporting you. See if you can feel space touching you. Usually when we think about touching space, we think about like picking up a finger and poking it in the air. But space is already touching us. It's always touching us. We just need to feel it. Bring your attention to your hands and see if you can make the shift from the more conceptual level, like of fingers, to the world of direct sensation, picking up warmth, coolness, pressure, whatever it might be. You don't need to name these things, but feel them. And on that same level of sensation, bring your attention to the feeling of your breath, just the normal, natural breath, wherever you feel it most distinctly. Maybe that's the nostrils or the chest or the abdomen. You can find that place, bring your attention there, and just rest. See if you can feel one breath. without regard to what's already gone by, without leaning forward for even the very next breath. Just this one right now. And if you find your attention has wandered, you've gotten lost in thought, or spun out in a fantasy, or you fall asleep, truly don't worry about it. You can realize you've been gone. See if you can let go gently. And with kindness toward yourself, return your attention to the feeling of the breath. 
If you're not using the breath, then whatever object is your home base. It's the letting go and the return that are most crucial. No matter how many times you might have to let go and begin again, it's fine. Just bring your attention back to the feeling of the breath or whatever's serving as that object. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes or lift your gaze and we'll end the meditation. So thank you. And uh, I don't know, uh, Jacqueline, if you've been accumulating questions or what's been happening. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I'd wanted to make sure you were finished before I jumped in. Um, But thank you. That was really lovely practice. Um, And I really appreciate the, the cue of like to not even jump ahead to the next breath. You could, I could just really feel everything unwind. And I'm not sure if you all saw some of our technical difficulties, but if you did um, for those of you out there, thanks for your patience um, and sticking around. So Now's the time when any of you can ask questions. So you're welcome to type your questions into the chat and uh, Gina will be sending them to me. Um, And I will ask Sharon for you. One of the things that I really also appreciate, there's so many things that were just juicy and spot on. It felt like when what you were saying, and one that I really liked was the story of um, the guy around concentration. And because I can, I get that sense like, um, that sometimes 
it becomes like this tight, narrow, like, like almost like a laser beam focus that doesn't seem to help very much. And it's like when I can soften it and like, I almost imagine like how one might hold a butterfly, like, like contained, but you know, open that that feels much better. And in that, the tightness, I have sensed like dryness in, a, in, a, in the practice. Um, and then there's often a resistance that comes. So I'm curious if you want to talk more about that in any way. Well, I think we learn a lot. A lot is illuminated by seeing how we maybe speak to ourselves when we get distracted or how we regard some of the many things that come and kind of tug at us. You know, are we resentful? Are we uh, resistant? You know, like, go away, go away, go away. Or or do we feel sort of centered? And it's like you're watching something coming and going, and it's all right, you know. Um, you're not freaked out about it, and you're also not drawn to it. I think of it often um, in terms of, like, if we were watching, say, a car mechanic fixing our car, and obviously it's a crucial time for them to be mindful, you know, to be focused and, and to be paying attention. And let's say this, this mechanic is working and then they have the, uh, some thought, like, should I refinance my mortgage? You know, we don't want them to hate themselves for thinking or carry on about it, but it's sort of like, not right now, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. let me just put that on the not right now. Just not not now. You know, our life depends on it, our safety, and just even doing a craft well, doing our job well, depends on our being able to have that kind of focus. But you you also don't want sort of the uh, bitterness about what's, what's coming up. You know, it's just the nature of thought, and it's the nature of our conditioning. And uh, as one of my meditation teachers, this Tibetan Lama Sokin Rinpoche once said, it's not the thoughts that are the problem, it's the glue. <laughs> you know, we take it to heart and we build a whole future out of it, whole self-image. That's the problem, not the thought. Yeah. Huh. Um, when you're, we were speaking, it brought up something, uh, a someone, a teacher used to say, which is uh, to make our minds our best friend. Uh, And so many of us, I think, you know, that's not the case. Maybe sometimes, but often it's, there's parts of it that aren't, but there's also seems like a doing in that, like, um, and, and this feels a little different. Like this isn't so much a, a trying, it's just more of a watching and letting the friend, the enemy, all of it just sort of be, um, do you have any thoughts about like this idea of making your mind your best friend? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thought that comes to me is that that's more about the holding environment again. You know, it, it's sort of like the surround or the energy, the environment, really, you know, the atmosphere that we are creating. And so if, you know, your best friend makes a fool of themselves, you don't jump on them, you know, like. Yeah. You say, wow, that, that must have been hurtful, you know, <laughs> or like, you okay? You fell down. Right. You know, and I think it's a great image, you know, to make your mind your best friend, make your experience your best friend. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but you also, you know, you, that doesn't mean like your friend shows you like the disaster they are planning and you say, good idea. You know, like, <laughs> you know, there's, there's discernment, there's wisdom, there's intelligence, but it's, it's kind of what we want. We want to relate to ourselves. And that's, you know, what a lot of exercises, as I understand it, in kind of the more contemporary Western exploration of self-compassion are back because self-compassion is like a little different or it's sometimes considerably different than self-esteem, which we also need. You know, sometimes we don't give ourselves credit. Like, wow, I learned Spanish during the pandemic, which I did not, but, you know, <laughs> it's one of my goals. Wow, you know, I really gave that my all. I really tried so hard. That was really tremendous. I never used to be able to do that. Or, you know, we should take a moment and not just blame ourselves for our failings, but appreciate the things that we've tried with or that we've learned or that we've accomplished. And that's good. But self-compassion doesn't come in when we've like learned tennis or learned Spanish. It comes in when we have fallen on our face, you know, we've made a mistake or we've blown something or we didn't show up in some way. So it's about those times that are harder, you know, and how we're going to relate to ourselves then. And so they have a lot of exercises like imagine it is your best friend sitting in the chair next to you and you're going to break the news to them that they failed the exam or something, whatever. Mm-hmm. How do you speak to them and how do you speak? How would you speak to yourself? Mm. And why are they different? Yeah. You know, things like that. Yeah. I love those distinctions. It's helpful. Yeah. Um, so some questions are coming in. I'm not sure who or where this is from, but one of the questions is when living with an aging parent who needs our support, how can we maintain loving kindness when they so often trigger painful emotions? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I get triggered by the word maintain, you know, which uh, I feel like I talk about a lot. I, I use the word, of course, because we all use the word. And But I've been noticing how often people frame a question, how can I keep mindfulness all day long at work? How can I maintain the level of concentration I had during the retreat? How can I retain the, you know, whatever? Um, And I always say, it's not going to happen that way. You're not going to maintain it. I mean, that's a difficult, difficult situation you're describing, you know, where somebody's getting more forgetful or they're saying the same thing again, or, you know, it's not easy, but we won't be able to maintain perfect calm and equilibrium. We won't, we will lose it. But those times while they happen, they last a shorter and shorter duration. So maybe you'll lose it for an hour instead of half a day. It doesn't feel like a great hour, you know, but it feels so painful that it's rare that we go back and say, this used to last half a day. This is a real difference in the quality of my life and my person's life, you know? And then an hour doesn't stay an hour. It starts getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And I say all that because I've seen through my years of teaching so many people get so discouraged because they say it's the same thing. It sets me off and I'm still losing it. You know, I'm getting nothing, but really it's such a big change when that feeling of overwhelm 
last five minutes compared to five hours. And it just keeps receding. And that, that's how progress happens. And so instead of feeling nothing's happening, you're making the exact progress that one, one would make. So that's, that's just part of it. Um, I think when we learn to really listen more and get more present with what is, instead of holding the, you know, very um, natural kind of wish that they'd be the way they once were. They're not the way they once were. And so um, the more we realize that, the more we kind of reach out to the person as a human being in the moment going through whatever. Like I have a friend who told me their mother was um, earlier in life when she was younger, an extremely adventurous woman, you know, very like a world traveler and a time when, you know, uh, it was a little more unusual for women to be striking out on their own and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And, um, and then she got older and they were, you know, taking a walk one day. And he said there was a slight, slight incline on the sidewalk. And she said, I, I can't walk up that. I can't do that. And he freaked out, you know, like, it's nothing. It's like nothing. Just like, you know, what do you mean you can't do it? It's like a little bump, you know, like, you can do that. And uh, she just kept saying, I can't do it. And then he said he realized that for her, it was not a little bump. Mm. It was like climbing Everest. That mm. that's how she was perceiving the world at that point. And that he, he shouldn't really be imposing his vision of how things once were. And realize, yeah, she's scared. And, and so then it was like, okay, let's go around. And there's so many stories like that, you know, when a person really has lost it. And they say, uh, you know, where where's my necklace or something, forgetting that they sold it 30 years before, you know. And, you know, where's my necklace? Where's my necklace? And the person has stopped saying you sold it 30 years ago. And they said, I sent it out to get cleaned. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then there's calm in the house and there's peace in the house, you know. Um, so we learn to really, really deeply listen to the best of our ability and forgive ourselves for the times that we we just get overcome. Yeah, I think that, um, the compassion piece, you know, some of those painful emotions might, for me, they sometimes have been the um, just things I wish had been different and still are the same, you know, and it's like, and I can get really angry or sad or, you know, back into my five-year-old self and just to be so compassionate with myself is, has really been the only way through. Yeah. Um, so Carly from YouTube is asking if you have any tips or tricks for dealing with repetitive thoughts and stopping them from repeating. Sometimes it feels like my thoughts just echo in my head. Um, it too, but, you know, there's a certain level in which it's probably not that useful to try to get them to stop Hmm. so much as have enough space around them that it's not, Hmm. uh, that impactful that they're there. Cause otherwise you might be setting yourself up for a task that's unfulfillable, you know? Like stopping your mind from being what it is, which would be a little unfair to yourself. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that's part of it. You know, it's like I have this friend, this colleague, Sylvia Borstein, um, who describes herself as a recovering catastrophizer. <laughs> it's like something will happen and she'll just think the worst, you know, the worst outcome. Like, I mean, she's 85 years old now and her children, like in their 60s, you know. <laughs> and so say, I call my adult child and then answer the phone. Well, the worst must have happened. Mm. It never occurs to me to take a shower. Or they fell in love and I'm really talking to their mother. And she was once so burdened by those thoughts because they kind of entered her. She took them seriously and she was like rolling around in them. And and she said that's when she got into meditation practice because it was so painful. Mm. She had to find a way of not getting rid of them, but getting some space. Because as she put it, you know, describing herself, I mean, (coughs) she tells these stories herself. Uh, I always feel funny when I say I'm a friend and then I, say something like that. And they're going to think I'm the worst friend in the world. Uh, they tell these stories themselves. Um, she says when it's really a crisis or there's really a problem, she's as steady as a rock. You know, it's not that. It's the conjecture. It's the thinking. It's uh, And she just learned through her meditation practice, maybe the thought arises, maybe she doesn't grab onto it. Remember, it's not the thought that's the problem. It's the glue. Yeah. And so now she, you know, those those thoughts can arise. At the very least, she knows to check it out before she freaks out. But mostly she can just laugh at herself. So uh, I talked to her not too long ago and she told me she had a new mantra. She had new things she repeats. So I said, what is it? And she said, not every bus is going to end up in a ditch. Mm-hmm. You know, so so that's part of it. There are ways of not being so ensnared in the repetitive thought. One, of course, is to be able to see the thought and uh, see it quickly. And that's the training in mindfulness and maybe using mental labeling. So there's like thinking, thinking, happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're kind of relating to the thought that way, reminding yourself it's a thought. Um, I used to... Uh, ask myself uh, in certain phases of my practice where it was a very, very strong habit. Um, I used to ask myself, what are you feeling right now? Because the thought is a spinoff usually of like, uh, you know, the example I usually use is when I was thinking about, I was meditating, I was living in India. I was thinking about how I was going to renew my visa. And it's all I would think about again and again and again and again and again and again. And then finally I said something to myself like, what are you feeling right now? Because it was really an emotional state that was generating that kind of, you know, I was very anxious. I didn't think I could get what I wanted. I so much wanted to stay there forever. Um, I hadn't had a life where I often got what I wanted, you know, like, uh, so there was a lot that was fueling that. And that was a more, fruitful level to really be working with and just spinning around the same thought all the time. So, Mm. you know, Mm. that's, that's one way of, Mm. of working with the sort of sheer repetition of it. Things like that. Yeah. I love that. Um, It also reminds me of like how trauma gets stuck in our system and in our body and 
like one of the ways we get away from it is to think. Um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, I'm sure we could talk about that for a long time. Um, but down under on YouTube <laughs> asks, I'm getting a I'm getting way too preoccupied with my sitting position being correct and just my overall form being correct rather than just going with it. How important is form in practice? Um you know, different schools, even within say Buddhism, will say different things. And I'm sure yogic schools will say other things, but uh all of my earliest teachers in meditation were either Burmese or had studied in Burma. So it's kind of like the Burmese school. And they're just not into posture. You know, like even if you look at Buddha images from Burma, they're like a little slumped over, you know, <laughs> straighten up. You know? um, I once called it, I was in France, I think, teaching, and I called it the Schlumpy School of Meditation. And <laughs> I came back the following year and somebody said, remember when you called it the slumping school of meditation? And I thought, well, not exactly, but close. Um, You know, so my own training, it just wasn't a strong factor. And they say, you know, the Buddha said you could meditate in four postures, sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. Um, If your back is fairly straight, your breath will be more at ease. Uh, you'll be able to maintain it longer. You'll actually have less pain than if you're kind of crumbled up. And it also symbolizes a kind of balance that we're looking for in the practice. We want energy, right? But don't like so much energy, you're really stiff and uptight. You also want to be relaxed and at ease and open. And so it symbolizes that that match or that balancing of energy and relaxation and so on. So. Um, I know if you asked a, a Zen teacher or somebody from another tradition or school, they would say, yeah, it matters a lot, but it just was never the way it was taught. So, And especially it was becoming a thing, you know, it's a project and yeah, they forget yeah. it. You know? Yeah. Also, I don't know if this is common, but I um, like that in the sitting, like instead of making it happen, it will happen when mm-hmm. it's ready to mm-hmm. that makes sense mm-hmm. sort of like oh that just moved yeah um so i don't know who this is from but it's from someone on instagram asking how do you respond when you're told meditation doesn't work for me you mean somebody says when i tried it it didn't work for me yeah like oh i meditated that didn't work for me um It doesn't, you know, nice cat. Uh, it doesn't seem to work as a coercive activity, you know. <laughs> so part of me is tempted to say, okay, good, you know. But mostly the way people phrase it um, is I failed at it. Mm. I tried it and I failed at it. Mm. Or I couldn't do it or I can't sit still. I'm not that kind of person. I can't ever sit still. And sometimes I would say, you know, well, first of all, we don't believe you can fail at it. You might have an uncomfortable experience, but it's not the wrong experience, you know. And Or what did you expect to have happen? Because people do expect things like, you know, 
my meditation was good, I'd have zero thoughts. I'd have a totally blank mind. It would just be empty space. It would, whatever, I, you know, sleepiness wouldn't have come up. I wouldn't have gotten anxious again ever. Right. Um, you know, and so sometimes that's an interesting conversation. Like, what what did you think should happen? Because mostly I find we are very unfair to ourselves and we have these impossible goals that don't happen for anybody, you know. Um, and the point is not to abolish our thinking, but to have a different relationship to the thoughts like I was just describing. And so uh, that could be the conversation or sometimes it's, um, well, if you're interested in it, you know, and found it wasn't for you, uh, let me tell you what's helped me have a, you know, a more regular practice or uh, depending on the relationship, you know, there are times when we uh, say, why don't we try this together for a week or a month or something and and we'll uh, each practice, I don't know, 10 minutes a day, whatever seems reasonable and report back to one another about what it was like. Why not? You know, things like that. We have another question that came in. Um, how do you overcome the fact that remembering and coming back is a lifelong practice, even every day, moment to moment, that we must constantly create our own peace? It just seems so overwhelming. Um, well, I think that's interesting. It can also seem reassuring. <laughs> you know, like, I'll tell you what came up in my mind was this story. Um, Uh, where um, I was teaching at the Insight Meditation Society. And uh, when we teach retreats, it's always in teams, you know, there's just groups of teachers who teach together. And uh, so I was listening to one of my other colleagues give the evening talk. Uh, Her name is Susan. And Susan had begun her meditation practice at the Insight Meditation Society, maybe, I don't know, 15 years before, 20 years before. And I'd been one of her first teachers. So I'm sitting there in the meditation hall and Susan's giving the talk. And she said, my first retreat, I was so restless and so agitated. I just went in to see Sharon and I said to her, has anyone ever died of restlessness during meditation? And she said, so of course I was fascinated, like, what did I say all those years ago? Has anyone ever died of restlessness during meditation? And she said, not from just one moment at a time of it. (laughs) And so I'm sitting there thinking, that was a good answer. And I know that's 20 years ago. Um, But that's sort of the point. When we think about a lifetime of restlessness, it's unbelievably overwhelming. If you think about this moment, I can deal with it because we do deal with it. You know, so it's this moment's worth of anguish or grief or sorrow or doubt or, you know, self-doubt or whatever it is. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm away with it in this moment and this moment and this moment. And then we lose it and then we start over again. Um, (laughs) she wants to be a part apparently you like that (laughs) or you didn't like that i'm not sure i think you did (laughs) 
Uh, which is really the answer. It's like our awareness is stronger than all of these states for a moment and then a moment and then a moment. So we have what we need. We don't need like a different capacity. We just need to apply the awareness that we are capable of, which we don't often apply. Uh, Roxanne, on we'll have a few more questions. Uh, we'll just go a few minutes over. Uh, Roxanne on YouTube asks, is it possible to be both assertive and balanced in the midst of being totally misunderstood? Yeah, I think so. I, I wouldn't want to say it was easy, you know, but yeah, I would, I would think so. For um, To be balanced, to be loving, to be compassionate. I think actually does not mandate a certain kind of action. That's our fear. If I were to be more loving, I could only say yes. I could only let them move back in. I could only give them more money. Yeah. But the the loving kindness or the compassion is like it's a state of the heart. And there are a lot of factors that go into helping us figure out what action to actually take. Do I go visit them or not? Do I write that letter or not? You know, there's discernment, there's past history, there's compassion for oneself. There's an understanding of our boundaries or our limits. There's a lot of things that go into writing that letter or not writing that letter. But our heart space can still be free and caring. And so... That's part of it, you know, is is really understanding that they're different. And we're not necessarily going to abandon ourselves when we take action, even if that's our habit. You know, we're going to bring a lot of presence and a lot of wisdom into that decision of how to manifest the the love or the loving kindness. And and it might be uh, getting distance, you know, it could well be that, if that's what seems wisest in the moment. Is there any last parting words you'd like to share for to this evening? Yeah, I'm still thinking about that person being balanced with somebody who doesn't like them. Oh, didn't mean to interrupt, sorry. No, 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 no. I, I mean, I... I was done, but now I'm not. <laughs> Great. Or maybe I am, but you know, um, <laughs> I think again, it's always good to go back to motives. It's like in, in the classical teachings, they say the Buddha taught loving kindness is a, an antidote to fear. Mm-hmm. And that is something I often remind myself of in those very kind of questions. Like, because people very reasonably say, why should I be practicing loving kindness for someone who hates me or people like me or doesn't think I should exist? And I say, yeah, I understand that. And if you feel loving kindness is a way of promoting somebody or giving into them, or it makes no sense. But what if it's true? There's the antidote to fear. Might that be a little useful in this particular situation? And I really say it to myself all the time, like, Hey, the Buddha said <laughs> loving kindness is the antidote to fear. Now does it make sense mm. in this dynamic? And remember, it's an experiment. Mm. 
you might do it and think, no way, done, you know. Uh, or you might find it gives you a kind of freedom that is actually pretty useful mm. in that situation. Mm. Does it ever, this is sort of a strange question, but does it ever kind of hurt? Like remain open to something that uh, there's another question around someone having a uh, interaction that with someone that's painful and like to keep that open heart can sort of create some pain. Um, how do you navigate that? Well, I mean, I think it, it can certainly create, I, I mean, I don't know if it creates the pain as mm-hmm. much yeah. as opens us to the pain, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, you know, we care and it hurts and because we're not in control. Yeah. But the um, factor of equanimity, which you, you brought up the word very early on, um, is, is what protects us ultimately. It's wisdom. Mm. Like if I were in charge of this universe, you could bet it would be a better world. And it's not going to be that way. Yeah. Because life isn't like that. And the more I can bring that into a situation, that wisdom, the more sustainable it is. It's when we have, mm. when we forget, we think we can do anything. You know, you also brought up perfectionism, you know, when we think uh, we have no limits, we have no boundaries. That's when we end up withdrawing because it's too much. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The surrender and letting letting go and allowing and not being in charge of the universe. I'm sure it would be a much better universe if you were in charge. <laughs> thank you. Sharon, thank you so much for being here. It it's always an incredible, um, like heart-centered, grounded, expanded joy. Um, I feel wiser whenever I get to listen to you. So thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, well, thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.